Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. Today we are going to bring to you a special edition. We're going to have basically a news night with Nick and Norman. We're recording at night so that we can call it a news night. We're going to kind of run through some recent events that have been in the news. Uh, Lots of people are talking about them on social media. Some of these things are very tragic and uh, we're, we're very sad that these events have taken place, and yet we also feel like we have some perspective on it as libertarians. Other things are probably don't affect us as much. Um, there are things happening around the globe, they don't affect us as much, but they do touch on libertarian themes. So we're going to start off by talking about the biggest tragedy that is on our minds right now, and that is the Vegas shooting and the issue of guns. So Nick, this, these events actually took place relatively close to where you live because you live in Las Vegas. Um, why don't you give us a review of what took place and talk about it? Everyone's familiar with this news, I'm, I'm sure. The Mandalay Bay Hotel and Casino, where the incident occurred, is kind of on the south end of the Las Vegas Strip, uh, right along one of the freeways, the I-15. And so, I mean, everybody knows the story. There was this country music festival Uh, The shooter opened fire, and hundreds of people were hit, Uh, 59 were killed. And so since then, uh, I mean, of course, it's an extremely tragic event, and and lots had a big impact on sort of the the culture and the mood here in in Vegas over the last couple weeks. But, But as far as political policy goes, uh, many on, on the left, immediately jumped towards the gun control push. Um, and, and unfortunately, many on the right also immediately tried to make it seem like, uh, oh, oh, this guy was probably an Islamic terrorist, uh, which I mean, we don't know that. Um, and, 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 and then the, the story is incoherent. I mean, we can't get a straight story out of, out of the uh, police over what they say happened. So, I mean, the whole thing is very confusing. No one really has... Uh, strong answers on this as of as of yet but like i said the the both sides really but particularly the left um, very quickly jumped to politicize it and call for gu- more gun control even though the weapons that were used in this attack uh, were already illegally modified so i mean it was already it was already illegal and i mean as as we know uh, if criminals want to, to to break the law, that's what they're going to do. If somebody wants to get to legal guns, that's what they're going to do. And so more gun control wouldn't have, have prevented this. Wasn't the uh, the bump stocks that were able to make them illegally modifiable, aren't those more easily available? Is that, isn't that what was the, the concern? Well, that's one of the things they're talking about is, is outlawing the bump stocks. And, you know, I, I'm actually not a gun guy, um, but I was with a friend of mine who is uh, w- within the past week and a half or so. So after this event and 
we were out to lunch, and then he swung by a gun store, actually, and uh, and so I was just kind of overhearing what he was talking to the guy about. And the, the fellow at the gun store said uh, basically the same thing. He says, you know, the, these weapons were already illegally modified, uh, so the, the additional clamp, clamp down on the laws that they're talking about would not have even prevented this guy from getting the weapons he had. And he also... This gentleman said that, you know, even if they outlaw the bump stocks, like that's not even something that, that concerns that particular gun store because they don't even sell them. Uh, so it, it really just seems like this is an excuse uh, that is being jumped on. We saw it after the, the uh, Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando. We see it after, after almost any kind of incident like this. There's always going to be a push uh, for, more, for more gun control. And, and like I said, I'm not a gun guy myself at all. Uh, but I, I believe in the right for people to own them if they so choose. And the big problem I have with gun control out, outside of, outside of the ethics of violating the non-aggression principle by forcibly prohibiting someone from owning guns is that there is no such thing as complete gun control. All it is, is gun consolidation. If you take away the guns out of the masses, Really, all you're doing is you're consolidating all the guns in the hands of the state, which is an even more dangerous position to be in than we are now. You know, I wrote an article on LCC on libertarianchristians.com that talked about my reaction when people have knee-jerk reactions to things like this. And, you know, it was no surprise that people on the left were going to immediately talk about gun control and look at yet another tragedy. It's the worst in human history or the worst in American history. And so, you know, what stood out to me about this particular tragedy is that the NRA's leader, Wayne LaPierre, he he had this theory that, you know, the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And, you know, in in, a, in particular scenarios, I suppose that we could imagine that's the case. That, that would have done nothing here. Just like sensible gun control, whatever additional policies that the left would like to impose upon the people of Las Vegas or the people of Nevada or the United States wouldn't really have helped in this scenario. Norman, do you, do you have any theories as to why people tend to just get polarized about this particular issue and why it's pretty expected that the left is just going to keep, you know, bemoaning that, you know, we don't have enough gun control. Well, to be sure there are some you know, find motivations from people who want to see violence go down. They they just have a misplaced view and faith in the power of the state to accomplish given uh, to accomplish an objective in the first place. This isn't uh, is, uh, this isn't really to be unexpected, considering that these are similar beliefs that they hold about things like universal health care or foreign uh, affairs uh, as as you know even conservatives uh, often hold views on foreign affairs that are that are fairly similar and in, in that oh well we just need to give the state more power to do things and they, they will be able to accomplish the objectives that they set forth so unfortunately what they what they're missing i think is the 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 just kind of the fundamental thing that goes on behind the scenes with respect to the state that in order to have any state action enacted upon people it requires the use of force and the use of violence in order to keep it in check. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it may be true. It might be true that if you just, well, in fact, I think it may be categorically true that if you were able to delete somehow all the guns from the United States of America, period, 
that there would there would at that point be no more gun violence. It doesn't mean there would be no more violence at all, though. And in order to keep the no guns in place, uh, unless you just had a magic delete button every time that you you know one appeared in the borders or something to that effect, um, there would there would in, immediately be a demand uh, for influx of of weaponry, uh, you know, by criminals and whatnot. You can't just delete human nature like that. Uh, and so there's that that sort of point being missed is uh, is probably a, I mean a good indicator of where it's coming from. Uh, that they, you know, sometimes these people do have good motivations. Um, sometimes it does come though from a, from a, uh, just a, a desire to control. And, uh, and that's something I think we also need to be aware of too. That's a, uh, we, we don't need to necessarily presume bad motivations on their part. Um, but they do often feel a, a great need to be in control like that. And, uh, that's something I guess that we need to, to be careful about. I think this is actually where, you know, you, you hear a lot of times, um, these sorts of words when talking to people, especially on the left, about guns in general, things like sensible gun control or common sense gun control. Uh, you hear these all the time. I even saw it recently in a weekend update segment of Saturday Night Live. And it kind of bothers me a little bit when you hear things like this, because this is a, a tactic that they're trying to use to, that, that kind of says, well, you know, we're the ones with reason on our side, in a sense, as if as if, you know, common sense gun control means that, you know, everybody just needs to have one gun and that's that, that needs to be their maximum or they need people need to have a limitation on the amount of ammunition they can buy or the types of things that they're allowed to have to modify their guns and, and whatnot. When we know for, you know, <laughs> that even the things that they've wanted to do and that, that they've progressively put more and more restrictions on uh, on weaponry have have not worked. It didn't work here and it's not going to continue to work. Uh, these are not things that that are ultimately going to that are going to that are going to work and be effective, um, because you know men's hearts are ultimately going to be the, the 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 deciding factor. And you know, sin is sin is sin, and uh, you can't get around man's sinful nature invariably uh, on this side of heaven. So you know, in in effect, what we really have to to do is we really have to drive home whenever we hear these sorts of arguments of what are the principles of the matter. This isn't about you know, de deferring to the leftist form of a common sense gun control debate. This is about what is appropriate for a free society. And it is, uh, and it's entirely inappropriate uh, in my mind to have uh, the, the conversation get steered around all over the place by people who want to redefine the terms of, of reason and sensibleness and common sense. <laughs> and so that's, I think that's something that we need to be aware of as we go forward here, uh, while still being sensitive to some of the goals and, 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 and the goal, some of the goals and desires that, that people want to see in the world. Yeah, it seems like the word reasonable is not very well defined, and it can be kind of anything. Like, well, who doesn't support reasonable? You know, it's like somebody saying... Well, we, we support effective laws. Well, <laughs> who doesn't support effective laws, whatever those laws are intended? Or the word reasonable gets thrown in there as if the person who just simply disagrees is unreasonable and hasn't thought through, you know, the ramifications of their argument. Yeah, if you look in, you know, the literature, and it sounds weird to say, but I'm an academic, so I say things like that. You, you'll you'll read about things like the Hegelian dialectic and how you know you you when you have a debate between a you know a, a thesis and an antithesis and then it's resolved through the some sort of synthesis, uh, you know by the rules of you know ma dialectical materialism and whatnot. You you kind of realize that this is 
this is a way of pushing a particular form of agenda. I mean, it's it's incompatible to have uh, to to have certain things go through that type of process. And that's but when they try and kind of push it through that sort of thing, well, we just need to come to a middle ground about this, and that'll be that'll be the way it'll work out best. That's not really the, the the way we should you know go about that kind of debate. Yeah, middle ground often means somebody far more radical than they are, and they're only like moderately radical coming to an agreement, a compromise themselves. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they have their their own agenda to push in those scenarios. Well, Norman, I think those are really uh, reasonable thoughts, if I don't say so myself. So, what we're going to talk about now, uh, up next, is sport. We're going to talk about football. David Gronoski, in a Fee.org article, he believes that by 2050 that the NFL will be no more. And one of the reasons he thinks that this is going to be the case is that the NFL has become essentially the Barnum and Bailey of our era and that it will eventually fall by the wayside. So, Norman, I know that you have, uh, I think you've read this article and I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on it. We're going to talk a little bit about, you know, this football will end uh, prediction by Gornoski and, and, uh, we've had him on the show. And then we're also going to talk about the other things going on in football, uh, which is the, you know, whether or not we're kneeling during the anthem and whether or not we're showing respect for the flag and whether the NFL should do something about it or force their players to do this or that. And why Mike Pence left a game. And I mean, there's just, it's just a lot of, a lot of stuff. So, uh, let's talk about, will football be gone in, uh, 2050? It's a good question, and I think it's a fascinating thesis that David's put forward here. Uh, first of all, I think we should just remind remind our listeners. You know, if you're if you regularly listen, you probably heard David from a few weeks ago. Uh, he's also been involved in our Christians for Liberty conferences and is a regular contributor to LCI's website. Uh, and we just highly recommend his stuff. We we love David a lot, and uh, and always are happy to whenever he's writing new things and uh, putting it, putting it out there. Uh, and so. You know, this this whole thesis, though, is he kind of is alluding to uh, a process that happened, you know, in in a long time ago in a country far, far away, namely Rome and gladiatorial combat. Uh, beyond just the Barnum and Bailey reference, you know, what happened interestingly in in uh, in Rome was that the those gladiatorial games that were super popular. I mean, for for you know centuries even. Uh, where Roman emperors would uh, would would bring in these massive crowds and have these uh, ultra violent uh, games taking place, and Christians were killed during them, other people were killed during them, slaves were killed, and it, it just became it was a, a massive spectacle. Uh, now this is a bit more of an extreme example, um, but as Christianity has kind of leavened the world since uh, Jesus's life, death, burial, and resurrection. Um, Something has kind of taken place that's changed uh, in in you know kind of the humankind's uh, visceral responses to even uh, the nature of victims. Um, previously, uh, it was very much a, a world in which victims were ignored. Vic- it was all about the uh, ways in which you could get away with power, um, and that still is the case a lot today. But what one of the things that Jesus's life and resurrection reveal is the uh, the the value of the victim, and because it puts the spotlight on the victim, uh, and and exposes uh, those who would use the victim to their own advantage, and so what's interesting here is that as this leavening kind of progressed through Rome, uh, even there was a there there 
gladiatorial combat eventually became uh, obsolete and it, it died, essentially. It died off. Um, so the question is, like, is football kind of like that now? As we're learning about um, certain things that are happening, you know, with the players and you know, there's a lot of attention that's being paid to injuries and concussions and brain damage and, and whatnot. Um, is this, is this leavening that's taken place even, is that something that, that is, a uh, you know, that, that might cause it to go away? Now, David's thesis is that, um, well, they can try to, to kind of fix this with technological improvements, but ultimately he even uses the words, it might make them look like Michelin men in, in uniforms, um, you know, the, the, with, with so much padding and whatnot that it becomes not very interesting anymore. Um, that, I mean, that's, that's possible. I think you know, my brother and I have talked a little bit about how that's, po- it's also possible that technology might make all of this, the protective gear so much more effective that it becomes possible to continue. Um, and it becomes a bit more of a, you know, more well-controlled environment. Um, it, whether, the, whether or not that would feed people's, uh, desire to watch or not is, is questionable. Um, but I think it's an interesting thesis. If, if anything, because of how, you know, of how people reacted to it, um, because people ultimately these days don't want to just, you know, have the, the most, you know, the most violent of sports being the, the most popular things on television like this. Um, it, that's, that's just, our sensibilities tend to, tend to, you know, diverge from that, you know, notwithstanding the popularity of certain other types of controlled violent sports, boxing or MMA or whatever, um, those are so, you know, fringe at this point, even relative to football that I think it, it's not really worth the, uh, the comparison. And that's something that I think David would agree with as well. Um, but the question is, is like, is David's, is David's thesis correct? Well, only time will tell. And there's definitely room to disagree. I think it's really interesting. The implications that are brought forth, um, from, you know, from understanding, uh, you know, how, Christianity has been has been this uh, revel, the revealing who the victim is and, and putting the spotlight on them uh, as opposed to those in power, um, and I think that's you know that's really an interesting um, the the more interesting component of the entire debate, if you will. You know, one of the things that that comes to mind here is that when you actually look at like culture and literature. Over the last several decades, you seem to see authors having predicted that we'd be going in a more violent direction in the future. And actually, that's we're seeing the exact opposite with this with this football scenario. So, you know, we might think of uh, Stephen King's The Running Man, which he wrote under the pen name Richard Bauckham. Uh, and even just a few years ago, there was The Hunger Games, which was wildly popular, basically depicting these dysotopian sporting events of the future. But you know, like you just said, Norman, it, it, and like David says in his article, I mean, it seems like we're, we're thankfully going in uh, the opposite direction. Our, our sensibilities are driving us away from these, these public spectacles of, of violence. And, and there's certainly exceptions to that, as you mentioned, but it, it does seem like we are moving in in the right direction because it's, it's well known now that football compared to other sports like basketball or baseball is is much more damaging long term to to the players i mean it's you know i mean you can get injured in any sport okay so i mean it's not like this sort of uh 
pie-in-the-sky thing that, oh, we can't do anything where anybody might get, you know, hit with an object or something like that. You know, sports is meant to be a little rough sometimes, but there's a difference between, you know, oh, I might fall down and, and sprain my ankle uh, versus long-term permanent brain damage, which seems to be sort of endemic to, to the way football operates. So I, I think society is kind of uh, recognizing that and and maybe we will see some changes, but 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 I agree with David. I, I think the NFL is is going to be long gone by 2050. I would I would maybe even peg it much earlier than that. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was gone by 2030 even. You know, it's interesting. You talked about how that's becoming, you know, violence is becoming something that we're all a little bit more sensitive to. Yet we also have a very overwhelmingly violent state that is that is committing violent atrocities all over the world. And even in football stadiums, you have players not standing for the national anthem in protest to what they believe are, uh, you know, atrocities that our government is uh, committing or that our culture has yet to see. So we have a, you know, we have players like Colin Kaepernick who kind of started this whole thing where people People on the right, the the God and country people, they're very much about, you know, this is disrespectful to the country or to the flag or to the anthem. And we have other people saying that they're just using their freedom to protest something that they believe is an atrocity or that they believe is, uh, you know, people being victimized by the state or being victimized by others in our culture. So this is definitely something that's been ta- being talked about in the last several weeks, and it's not something that will go away. So if somebody listens to this several years from now, this is going to be an issue because this gets down to the idea of patriotism, which we have talked about on this show uh, before. I had a friend of mine, we were talking about this at one of the places that I do some work, and he doesn't care that people are not kneeling but why do it during the anthem when the flag represents the fact that you have the freedom to protest what you want? Uh, well, what do you guys think of this whole issue? And is my friend just, you know, we 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 talked about it and and had a had a conversation about what what might be different in our perspectives. But uh, what do you guys think? Well, the thing that probably most remarkable to me. I mean, we we just started talking in this segment about sort of the analogy of even football to gladiatorial combat, and if anything. The thing to me that most resembles uh, a lot of uh, or the, what what happened even in gladiatorial combat is the, this emphasis or uh, on the the glory of the state uh, that has to happen at the beginning of all of these you know games. Uh, what and this is and this is not just you know football related. This is basketball. I mean any baseball, any foot, any sport. Uh, that in the United States and this happens even in you know the the Olympic games as well. There's just this almost like visceral connection that people want to make uh, so often between the participation in sports and some sort of country allegiance. It's, it, it's really kind of weird, but uh, I think there's a, when, like when you kind of step back and think about it, it seems really odd. However, I think there's perhaps a little bit more understanding once you started applying things like mimetic theory, as we've talked about on the podcast in the past and what you'll hear us talk about on the blog sometimes, uh, at any rate, it, to me, like that's that's remarkable. There's no reason why we should have to have uh, these sorts of uh, 
displays of patriotism at the beginning of every game. And it's like, like it's like clockwork. It, it in fact, people would think it's weird at this point if we didn't. Uh, but that alone should indicate to us that this has gone beyond just regular or, or some sort of uh, normal occur, you know, normal type of behavior, but is entered into the realm of almost mythos. Uh, that this is part of something that goes beyond uh, just even a cultural phenomenon, but is is something that's attached to almost like a civil religion, if you will. I mean, we've got our president and vice president involved in this so-called. Yeah, isn't that funny? That 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 you ha- that you have the the arguably the most powerful political people in the country that are somehow you know lowering themselves to having to pay attention to this sort of behavior of of just a few people in in these sorts like why is that important you know it, it's because it is important to maintain the mythos of the state the friend I referenced earlier he and I were were discussing this and. I sort of pin this on people thinking about the anthem and the flag and their patriotism as tied to not the state per se, although many people are still kind of proud of their government to some extent, but they're, they tie it to their country and they don't see it as their country, as the state or the government and the people, they see it as the people they work with, the people that, you know, within the, the, where they travel the people they meet when they travel around their around the country, where all of their relatives live in different states. And so they think of it as their fellow people, which on the one hand, there's really not a whole lot wrong with saying, I love my countrymen. There seems to be this confusion over when you disrespect the flag, that you're disrespecting the people in your country. And more specifically, you're disrespecting the people who supposedly fought to keep our country free. That is a whole other topic we can certainly get down to. But a lot of others who are protesting are doing so that they're not protesting the country, although I guess some of them are protesting cultural phenomenon that they think are is oppressive. They are they're it's not like they don't love their country. They love their country, which is why they're protesting. I think in many cases that's true. Uh, there's certainly a, a ubiquitous examples on social media and elsewhere of progressives on university campuses and just from off the streets who are commenting on social media who who don't think that way at all. They just say, I I hate America and that's why I hate the flag. Um, But but I think for most, at least, it's it's not that it's more like what you were saying. I mean, it's it's entirely true that there are, you know, systemic problems against against ethnic minorities uh, that that run rampant through uh, through U.S. public policy and, and policing, and I mean, these are these are real issues, and we see these things um, all, all, all the time. And so, to the extent that that's what is being protested, all right, I I, I get it. I mean, I don't. I, I don't say the Pledge of Allegiance. I, if, the, if I'm at a sporting event, which is very rare, but if I am and the national anthem comes, I'll typically like just step towards the bathroom or something like that because I don't want to cause a scene. Uh, but I also am not going to pay homage to 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 the state, uh, which I which I think conflicts with my with my Christianity. Um, but you know the one of the humorous observations that a friend of mine made recently in, in reference to this is because one of the other things that's going on is we have the Confederate statues, you know, being torn down and, and vandalized throughout the South. And 
you know, he, he observed that, okay, here we have the, the American flag, which represents, was essentially the, the successor to uh, the Union during the Civil War, right? I mean, the, we have continuity with the Union. That's the triumphant side of, of the Civil War. And yet it's the very same people who are, uh, for the most part, not exactly, but many of the very same people who are saying, oh, you're not allowed to protest the flag, the U.S. flag, uh, are, are the same people who are uh, having a problem with uh, uh, others attacking Confederate monuments, which technically, according to official U.S. history, and of course I dispute this, but according to official U.S. history, uh, was, was a treasonous sect against the American flag. So it's kind of cognitive dissonance in a way, uh, but, but fundamentally it, it just comes down to this issue of the, the, the flag I think does represent the state, and as Christians, we shouldn't uh, pay honor to the state, but we should love our neighbor, and that includes loving our countrymen, and you can appreciate things about the culture and the opportunities afforded by your country, and I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad to live in America, I mean, and there's many wonderful things about this country, but I just don't like the state, um, and I, through peaceful means, I, I want to see it uh, wound down, and, and that's really what it comes down to for me. I think everybody kind of imputes their own subjective interpretation onto this issue, but that, that's how I see it. I think one of the most important things that we can remember, and one of the things that I appreciate most about my country that I love is that we are allowed to protest. We are in some ways, if you consider the founding fathers, uh, the spirit of our founding fathers and founding documents, we're expected to protest when the government is uh, going off the rails or just even a little bit. Um, that That is part of what our freedom is to do is to protest. And it's one of the things that I love about my country that we can, that we can actually do this. Um, you know, if we want to live in a country where we all have to stand for the national anthem, then we can, what, you know, if you're that kind of person, then you can move to North Korea and everybody there must stand for their national anthem. And you can live in that kind of country if you'd like. And, you know, speaking of North Korea, we're actually going to turn to Nick now for the weather report. Well, Doug, the weather in North Korea looks like it could be nuclear winter coming soon. Uh, you know, this is really crazy, everything that's going on. I mean, a lot of us, uh, at, at least amongst the liberty movement, thought that maybe, maybe Trump would not be a neocon on foreign policy. And yet he's just saber rattling like crazy. And North Korea is, is one of the most uh, profound and dangerous examples of that. I mean, when you... North Korea is very famous as being one of the, the most restrictive and maybe the most restrictive uh, place on Earth. So it's, it's kind of hard to get an accurate report of exactly what's going on in there. Michael Malice has, has done some of the best reporting on that. But a lot of the popular Western perception that we seem to have of North Korea just, just isn't true. I mean, that we, the, the media sort of gives us this, uh, this narrative that the North Koreans are completely crazy and totally brainwashed and could just go, go nuts and start launching nukes at the United States any minute. And that's simply not true. I mean, even today or, or in the last couple of days, there was a report um, and, and the headline was something like, 
uh, electromagnetic pulse bomb from North Korea could wipe out 90% of Americans, which is just ludicrous. I mean, it's so insane. This is a country that is that is a communist country. And we all know what happens in communist countries. It doesn't work. It falls apart. It's happening in Venezuela right now. These people can't produce the kind of technology to even come close to doing that. There is no way it's an existential threat to the United States. And just looking at the economics of it uh, makes that abundantly clear. Now, to his great credit, uh, Rex Tillerson, who's the incumbent Secretary of State, has been trying to talk to the North Korean regime and find a diplomatic solution to this. But Trump has actually undermined him every step of the way by making these ludicrous comments like, uh, I, I hate to tell Rex that there's no negotiating with Rocket Man, which is the nickname that Trump gave to Kim Jong-un. Um, and, and so, I mean, it seems like, you know, Trump is just determined uh, to, to attack North Korea. And it's not that, you know, we have to worry so much about the North Koreans retaliating against the mainland United States, which I think is highly unfeasible. Uh, I mean, especially if, if the U.S. wages a preemptive strike, which is probably most likely, uh, the, the missile capabilities of North Korea would be wiped out almost right away. Uh, but the, there, there is a danger in them launching an attack on Seoul, which is right right across the border, the capital of South Korea. So that's certainly within striking distance of, of the North Korean regime. But at, at the end of the day, it, it comes down to diplomacy. I mean, the, the North Korean government uh, will eventually collapse because of the unsustainability of communism. I mean, we have to keep in mind, this is still a very young country. This is in its third generation of, of leadership. Uh, Kim Il-sung, uh, Kim Jong-il, and now Kim Jong-un, who are, are a, a dynasty dictatorship. So we're in the third generation of, of the North Korean government, still a very young country. Eventually, communism will, will catch up to it, and it will economically collapse. And the people of North Korea will then be free to, to pursue uh, a, a more free society. And, and already... There's North Koreans who are importing Western media, even though it's totally illegal. They can be put to death for it over there. Uh, and, and reading Western books and, and being exposed to even I mean, Christianity. There's, there's Christians. There's the underground church is thriving in North Korea. So, I mean, the, the writing on the wall is already there. The North Korean government is going to implode on itself at some point. Why? Why would Trump want to drag us into this crazy another war? Uh, and, and unfortunately, you know, probably see a lot of civilian casualties in the process, not, not in the United States, but in, in Asia. That would indeed be completely tragic and unnecessary. And it just brings to mind, you know, the, the, some of the classic things that, you know, we heard Ron Paul talk about in his campaigns about foreign policy, about not getting into conflicts that uh, that are that just you know admire us in problems and having a humble foreign policy one that is focused on diplomacy and not uh, bellicose bellicosity and uh, let me say that again and having a humble foreign policy one that's focused on diplomacy and not bellicosity it's uh, it, it also brings to mind the way that you know he would that Ron Paul would bring up the way that our founding fathers wanted to do diplomacy that we should have 
peaceful negotiations uh, with people and not and not having entangling alliances. Um, so you know, friend, friendships with all and and uh, and no no encumbrant encumbrant treaties that just that mire us down. And so it's really problematic, you know, from any point, from any libertarian's perspective that we would that we would uh, whether you whether you kind of like Trump or whether you're absolutely against him, we can all see the just the insanity of trying to get into another conflict like this. And so it's just it, this is a real. This is a real watershed moment in many respects, I think, for uh, for the the Trump presidency, even. And hopefully that you know we can see this come to a, a better resolution. Not because we want to see uh, any 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 sort of success on the part of the, the presidency, but we just don't want to see people die. Uh, we don't want to we don't want to get into another conflict like this because it'll be horrible for so many people. And our prayers should be that that we can avoid this. Uh, you know, through through diplomatic efforts, and and hopefully, you know, there there are some promising aspects to working with, say, China uh, to to resolve some of the, these issues. You know, they're much more close to this to the to the uh, to the to the ground, if you will. And there's a lot of uh, interesting research out there. Even uh, one of our one of our friends of LCI, Doug Bandow, has written a piece in the, uh, of recent in recent months about uh, how China could be the answer. Uh, to solving di- diplomatic efforts with uh, with North Korea, and I hope that people pay attention to these sorts of things. And and heck, if if that were if if that had an influence upon uh, policy, then then you know that would be amazing. And we want to see we want to see this come to a peaceful resolution as quickly as possible. Likewise, we're also seeing issues cropping up with this new Iran deal, and uh, I think Nick, you might have some things to say about that too. Yeah. So the Iran nuclear deal was passed a couple of years ago during the Obama administration, and it was, you know, widely hated by by the neocons and even by a lot of more mainline conservatives. Uh, because I mean, I, Iran has been, you know, demonized by by the Western propaganda war machine for a very long time. And that's not to say that Iran is good. It's not okay. I mean, the, the state is never good, and Iran is still. Uh, well, but we should we should be clear, though, that there there are lots of really great people from Iran. I absolutely. I actually worked with some of them. So <laughs> absolutely, there, there there's a lot of people who who have come out of Iran and who have done great things in in science and in other areas, uh, including Christian ministry. Um, yeah. So I mean, you know, one of the interesting things is is Iran is a country where. Uh, I mean, it's still illegal to convert to Christianity, which of course is is a terrible that that would be illegal, but if, if you're already a Christian, you can live peacefully in Iran uh, and, and not be harassed by, by the government, um, as opposed to Saudi Arabia, which is the U.S.'s favorite Arab ally, which is the most oppressive Islamic theocracy in the world, and where public display, displays of Christianity uh, get your head chopped off. So why... Is the government so cozy with Saudi Arabia and yet so hardline against Iran? And again, it's not that Iran is good. Okay, it's it's not good. The state is never good. But it's just that, relatively speaking, uh, Iran is one of the more moderate Islamic countries and is is not threatening to the U.S. at all. Uh, I mean, when you when you look at these examples of like the, the the Pentagon sending the U.S. Navy into uh, Iranian waters just as a show of force. I mean, is it any wonder why they would want 
weapons to protect themselves. I mean, it's it's they're they're being provoked, which is just stupid. Uh, so, I mean, David Stockman actually had an article uh, relatively recently in response to what what Trump has done is he's trying to basically nix the the Iran nuclear deal and he's kicking it down to Congress to have them make the decision on it. Uh, the Iran nuclear deal from 2015 was meant to prevent um, through through mutually agreeable terms, Iran signed this this deal and several other countries signed it as well uh, to to basically put a, a limit on Iran's capabilities to develop nuclear technology, but still have some capabilities to use nuclear technology in acceptable ways. Okay, well, Iran has basically lived up to that agreement, uh, but Trump and, and certainly the neocons who are whispering in his ear are claiming that they have not lived up to that agreement, and now, whoa, the deal's off. So, I mean, this just looks like another pretext for war. Uh, as, as I mentioned, David Stockman wrote a great article uh, called the uh, the deep state's bogus Iranian threat. David Stockman, of course, was uh, a member of the Ronald Reagan administration, and he's a, a great libertarian commentator. But he's just talking about how ridiculous uh, this whole thing is. This idea that that Iran is somehow uh, an existential threat to the United States. I mean, it, it's it's always the same story: Iran, Iraq, North Korea. These are small little countries that aren't going to go pick a fight with the United States. Uh, they just want to be left alone. And But but that's not acceptable to neocon hegemony uh, in, 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 in foreign policy, which insists that we must dictate and impose our will on every country. And if you don't go along with that, oh, we, we, we got to attack you. So we just have to get away from this craziness. So we're going to get into another stupid war and it's going to have a lot of a lot of civilians in the Middle East are going to get killed. Unfortunately, a lot of American soldiers are going to get killed. We just have to stop with the war propaganda. So now we're going to turn to another segment on foreign relationships. Apparently, there is a segment of the Spanish society who want a divorce from the mainland. And I think Nick's going to tell us a little bit more about that. Right. So this has been a pretty big story in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Catalonia is one of the regions of Spain. It's in the northeastern uh, part of Spain, and it is home to Barcelona, which is Spain's second largest city after the capital, Madrid. And there's been an independence movement in Catalonia for, for a long time. And, and the regional government did enjoy some autonomy from from the central government in Madrid, but uh, they, they wanted independence. They wanted to break off and create a separate country. And so uh, over the past several months, uh, there were a lot of threats coming out of uh, Madrid and the central Spanish government against Catalonia and the Catalan government, uh, basically saying, if you vote to, to secede, uh, there's going to be uh, serious consequences. And they tried to shut down the vote. Uh, they sent in the national police to seize ballots, to shut down polling stations. It really became heavy-handed and iron-fisted. But the regional government pulled off the vote successfully anyway, despite these, these ridiculous, uh, completely oppressive tactics out of Madrid. The, 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 the Catalonians were able to hold their vote and overwhelmingly, voted in favor of seceding from Spain. And in fact, a lot of commentators believe uh, that 
if it weren't for the heavy-handed tactics of Madrid, the vote um, certainly would not have passed by the the margins by which it passed, but and, but maybe even would have uh, narrowly failed outright. So in a way, this is even bigger news than Brexit was last year, but it's, it's all part of the same thing. We have to understand what's going on here. This kind of global movement um, that that basically has to do with people saying we're, we're tired of, of the elites trying to run our lives. Now, what the alternatives are aren't always well thought out. I mean, these aren't all necessarily libertarian movements, but the idea is they are moving in the direction of decentralization and more localized control. And Brexit, okay, that was one example of, of a, a country leaving a supranational body, the European Union, this was even more radical. This is a, a province, essentially, seceding from the country. Uh, and, and right now, I mean, this story is still developing as of this recording. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's unknown what's going to happen. Is Madrid going to uh, invade with the Spanish military into Catalonia? Are they going to arrest the, the regional government officials? Uh, we don't know. It, 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 it's a very crazy situation. But the point is, the, the, these people overwhelmingly, uh, by even millions and millions of people, this is, this is a big region of Spain, uh, said, we don't want to be part of Spain anymore. And I think this is just part of a, a much larger trend that we're seeing develop throughout the world. And we're going to keep seeing the dominoes fall. And we're going to see more secessions. And we might, it might eventually even lead into seeing uh, state secessions from the United States right here in, in the U.S. Uh, there, there are certainly movements that have been talked about in recent decades, like in Texas and Vermont, and more recently from the left in California. Uh, so we will, we will see what, what transpires here. But I think it's just part of a larger theme uh, moving in favor of decentralization. What I like about the, what we see happening in Catalonia and the, you know, the little movements that spring up around the country, you know, in the United States is that this, this idea of secession becomes a topic of discussion among people who, who disagree about it. I mean, it's a, obviously it's a contested, it's very contested, uh, you know, issue. And yet you still have people in California pushing for this sort of thing. And you have movements in, you have actual movements in California pushing to succeed from the state of California. And so it allows, in, in some ways it allows a discussion to take, to take place over the course of several years, maybe even several decades to where it's, it maybe it's possible by the year 2050, when we've given up on the violence of football or something like that, that as a country, we don't have this impulse to forcibly keep people from remaining in our country. And we won't have to, uh, we can let people peaceably secede. Do you guys see that as a trend maybe, or do you still think there's going to be the kind of uh, violent state-based backlash uh, or, or maybe proactive prevention of such, such movements? This situation is going to inform a lot of those people who are interested in such questions for, say, the United States or elsewhere in the world as to how to do this in a way that doesn't result in a firefight. Because so far, even despite the heavy-handedness of the Spanish government, 
in in their electoral process and you know that we that we that Nick alluded to uh, we haven't seen you know something that amounts to what would be a civil war and the presumption especially in the United States has been well if you know we're going to tie up any even remote allusion to secession into a discussion about the civil war and how that was clearly the result of uh, of of the secessionary impulse uh, and it doesn't have to be that way you know that we're in a sense, we're scarred in the United States by that uh, horrendous, uh, you know, event. The Civil War didn't have to happen, uh, and it was it was badness on all sides. It wasn't just one side doing the wrong thing. It was it was a, a confluence of of evils working together. Uh, it didn't need to happen that way, and that's something that we're hopefully going to see uh, here. And even if it even if it doesn't necessarily happen. The, the, the fact that we're seeing this so far as a movement that has not amounted to significant um, you know, uh, country-scale violence uh, should give a lot of people hope that this is, a, in the future, something that's realistic. And so no matter what happens, I think that's a positive that we can look forward to. I think the degree to which we view secession in the future as reminding us too much of the civil war is going to reflect is going to be kind of conditioned on the reasons people want to secede. So if California wants to secede because they feel like, you know, the state of California is uh, being oppressed, they're not going to make it seem a lot more like the civil war. They're going to make it, they're going to hearken it back to the revolution and they're going to say, well, we're just being oppressed. Whereas even though I don't believe the myth that the Civil War was about slavery, that is the narrative that most people assume. And so insofar as it's about maintaining an injustice, people are going to be against secession. So they're going to be against, say, for the for instance, say, the state of Florida seceding from the Union if, for instance, the rest of the country perceives it as because of, a, of an injustice that they, that they perceive. So insofar as people see states or, or regions seceding for reasons of we want more freedom from an oppressive regime, then I think that's going to be more permissible. So we have talked about a lot of different topics today, and this is one of those things where we, we actually didn't map out every bit of the conversation, and so it was kind of interesting to see where it took us. If you are listening to this far into the future, we hope that the themes and topics that we talked about uh, weren't just about current events in, in our time, but uh, also things that, that are relevant to the things that you think about. So um, we are going to sign off, and we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can submit a question or uh, send us some feedback. You can email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and, of course, our website, libertarianchristians.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.